You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with uh, fellow tech friends, AJ Vickery and John Beeler, broadcasting from our homes. We have a really awesome show today. Later on in the program, we'll be talking with Dr. Richard Titus. Uh, He's a doctor over in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, And we'll be talking all about virtual care. If you have had to go to the doctor in the uh, past uh, few weeks, Many of you have probably done it virtually through video chat. Well, uh, we're going to talk to him about uh, all the aspects of that and what his thoughts are about that being uh, around when the virus dies down and uh, if that's going to change the way we visit our uh, practitioners. We will funny, also... Uh, funny thing for me there, Mike, um, the, I had to go to the vet this week and they offered me virtual care for my dog. <laughs> <laughs> How does that work? I mean, I like it. I love it, but I can see all kinds of wrong things happening there. I know. Guess who had to check his temperature in his butt? <laughs> Leanne? <laughs> the mouse? What? <laughs> How do you check the dog's temperature? Like, do you, yeah, I know. What? Do you happen to have a dog butt thermometer lying around? <laughs> if you do, I'm you're going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and my next question, like I know my two dogs, there's no way they would sit still for that. Well, yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, but you know, this is the world we live in now. Yeah, but did you find that convenient? Uh, I mean, I don't think so personally. I would prefer to just take the dog there, drop him off, go get a coffee, come back, pick him up, and pay the seven hundred dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> personally. Your thermometer was the cheapest part of that whole thing. You know that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. And so did they... Yeah, I guess they still charge you the same amount, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I roughly, yes. Oh, I get it. I get it. Roughly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and did you get a diagnosis? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> He's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, so, I mean, I, ultimately, I did have to take a pee sample down there. As well. Oh, okay. So I, to, I mean, how the story get a, just gets too too long and how and do you get a pee sample? How'd you get a pee sample from a dog? Well, uh, okay, this is actually not a tech trick, yeah. but uh, but I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, it's brilliant. You use a, a ladle. A ladle. Yeah. So what you do is like, well, the dog's having its pee. You just kind of sneak a little soup ladle down down there, and it's brilliant. Dog doesn't know. You don't have to be sitting down there with a bottle or nothing. It's just like it's brilliant. <laughs> the visual that gives me right now is not comforting i know one thing sure. when dog. you guys ever come to my house you are not going to have soup or <laughs> check your tomorrow temperature <laughs> oh you totally derailed this aj okay <laughs> besides the virtual care for humans uh, we'll also be talking uh, with alex fraser he is a consultant for the hospitality and restaurant industry all about the commissions that the food delivery app uh, folks are charging and if that is sustainable. Uh, Quickly, uh, in the news, uh, did you guys see that story about the Amazon vice president uh, resigning? Yes. I actually know Tim. Oh, you do? So what what happened there? Um, Well, basically, he was just tired of uh, the corporation's inactivity as far as or actually activity as far as dealing with the people within the company that were complaining about the, the, the working uh, environments and the whistleblowers that were fired uh, because they were raising concerns. And he just said, you know, that enough of this, I'm out of here kind of thing. And 
it, it's a it was a really interesting story because I heard about it. I didn't realize it was Tim, and I haven't seen Tim for for years. But um, we used to travel in the same circles, and I always found him to be a very interesting guy and a very quiet guy. So this is to me, this seems like a lot for him to say, um, uh, and and you know, to leave a fairly prominent position in Amazon over this as well. Yeah, that is. Um very, uh, I guess, brave of him to, to come out mm-hmm. uh, in that yeah. aspect. I, I can only imagine the pressure that, uh, you know, some of these Amazon workers are under right now. I mean, can you just imagine the amount of or volume of business going through with those folks at the moment? Well, and the the scary thing is, is that a, a number of the warehouses have have uh, infections. And so they've had to close some of them or, or, you know, temporarily close parts of them. And, you know, I can only imagine the stress that would put on the people that are there. I mean, a lot of people in the warehouses, they're entry-level staff, and they may have just started as part of, you know, the current situation. They picked up some uh, part-time work or full-time work. Uh, and so now they're thrust into this place that's probably chaotic uh, at the best of times. Yeah. You can only imagine what it's like right now. Well, we'll be uh, following up on that story as we get more details. We are going to have to take a break right now. When we come back, if uh, you have ordered any food through Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes or any of these other food delivery apps, you've got to listen to this next segment. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Mike Agarbo and John Beeler. We uh, want to explore something uh, right now that's affecting a lot of the restaurant uh, industry. During the COVID-19 pandemic here, obviously, we're not hitting the restaurants. We are ordering from them, and a lot of them are using these food delivery apps, be it uh, Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes. Today, we wanted to dive into that a little more to help the listeners understand how that all operates where the money is going, and is this working for the restaurants in general? We've got a great guest on the line. His name is Alex Fraser. He is the Vice President of Western Operations at the 15 Group. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Great to be here, Mike and John. Thanks for having me. I I find this fascinating. I I know a few friends that have uh, restaurants, and I would say you know, a lot of them, they've had their own delivery drivers since the beginning of the time, and they're continuing to stay with that because they they say they can't afford these, uh, these delivery food apps. Uh, maybe you can tell our listeners the basics of how they, they work, you know, how, how they make money and, you know, how they're helping the restaurants. Yeah. So, you know, with, with third-party delivery apps, you, you see three components to what they do. They, uh, they one, they charge a setup fee to get going. Uh, two, uh, they then take uh, a percentage of the sale uh, that the restaurant um, is, uh, is taking on that. Uh, and that is anywhere from 20 to 30% that they take that the restaurant loses on each order. And uh, thirdly, um, you know, they've, they've done an incredible job at setting this business or these businesses up. Uh, that's great for the market, but not necessarily great for the restaurant. Um, because often, you know, that 20 to 30% that they're charging on each order is, is really uh, eating up the uh, profit that uh, a restaurant would typically take uh, on that order. So, it's been an interesting uh, time over the last, uh, you know, six and seven weeks uh, from the pandemic because I, I feel like it's a bit of a reckoning um, uh, period where uh, this has now shone light on uh, how these uh, 
third-party apps are set up and, and what kind of impact it has on the restaurant. I, I can see the the pros and, and the cons. Obviously, it, it's a central place. Uh, it's kind of like a, a marketing advertising tool for these restaurants that are participating because you know, so many people are using, you know, for example, like a skip the dishes or, or Uber eats. And it's so easy to go in there and find exactly the type of restaurant you want. It's so convenient. Um, but right. to your point, you know, the, the money that goes out to, to these delivery apps, it's, it's a lot. And you know, my restaurant friends, they're not, their margins on their food, they're not killing it. You know what I mean? It's not like double digit margins in, in many cases. It's just like single digits. So I fundamentally do not understand how they could make money using these delivery apps. Like it's kind of uh, almost a necessary evil because if they're not on it, they're not going to get the business they, they want because all their competitors are on it. But if you're giving out 20 to 30% commission, like how much profit does that leave? Yeah, it doesn't leave much. And it's such a great point, Mike, because uh, what, what we see is is um, they've done an incredible job at at um, intensifying the need for third-party apps in the delivery market. And what they've done is they've They've positioned it really as if you don't have a third-party app, then you're you're not really uh, getting yourself out into the market. And you know, let's break this down for a second. You've got um, you've got very quick serve, small takeout restaurants using third-party apps. And if you have tremendous volume, meaning that your concept is set up for that, then third-party apps maybe makes uh, better sense because you now have so much volume that uh, your price and structure can allow for. Uh, that to happen and make sense. If you're a mid-sized restaurant that's more of a sit-down restaurant, you've got a few things to consider. Now with the pressure of feeling like you need to have this out into the market and be available for the market, you're now adapting your model to have delivery drivers come into an environment that typically wasn't set up for takeout. So imagine you're, you're dining with a friend and you're having a great experience and there is a constant supply of um, delivery app uh, people coming in to pick up uh, their their takeout, um, and now it's disrupting the service. So um, it, it's a challenge in that regard. And, and also those types of restaurants, the business model isn't set up well uh, to do that because they're not that smaller quick serve model that is making their money on the frequency of ordering. I think you brought up an interesting point, Alex. The the notion of sitting in a restaurant, having a nice meal with somebody, and then watching a driver come in and pick up a bunch of food. But that happened to me a, a while ago, and I actually watched the driver and what they were doing, and they were actually filling their trunk with these delivery bags. <laughs> and it was like, wow, that's a real big turnoff. I don't want you know my food to be sitting in the back of a trunk with somebody else's food. Who knows when it's actually going to get to me? And the apps do show you the timings, but it's just not as good as getting a dedicated driver from that restaurant, bringing it right to you straight. Yeah, it's a great point, John. I, I mean, you've got that disconnect of brand as well, right? So you, you know, when you have your delivery driver that um, you've employed for a number of years, uh, there's uh, there's a connection there. There's someone that's representing your brand in a way um, that's not only best for you, but also best for them. Um, so we, you know, we, we see that model having a different um, impact, if you will. Um, and, and, and also, it, you know, this may lead to in the future, 
models um, really building out a footprint of the restaurant to have a really dedicated, great pickup spot. And you see so many of these in New York um, where you'll find uh, one part of the bar which is segregated enough that you're not impacting the actual great uh, experience that you've created with atmosphere. Um, and now uh, you've worked all day, uh, the kids are at home, you're going to pick something up, you're going to go in there, get in and get out and not be disruptive. And the other part of that is I don't want to go in and disrupt a great evening by coming in and getting takeout. So it may lead to um, some different footprints in the future where the restaurant takeout, uh, where we're, we're promoting people coming in uh, to pick up their food and, and leaving is, um, is built out a little bit more uh, in a commerce way and a little bit more efficient to the, uh, the overall experience. We're, we're looking uh, again at the overall profitability for a lot of these restaurants. You know, we're talking about the 20 to 30% commission. I've seen some jurisdictions and cities uh, trying to enact bylaws on limiting the amount of commissions. I believe San Francisco was what was one of these. Yeah, San Francisco and Seattle for sure. And you know that's you know that's a, a great point because we're you know I'm really interested in finding out if this might be a reckoning uh, for governments to uh, and municipalities to uh, cap what the delivery fees are uh, in the future. Um, and uh, you mentioned San Francisco and Seattle have uh, have started that. Uh, program and I think that might be um, you know something that's very uh, interesting and, and potentially great for uh, the industry and it, it also is going to um, shed light on other opportunities for delivery and you mentioned you know the, the uh, in-house delivery driver and, and the challenges around that can typically be insurance um, but we've also seen things um, that have come out from this um, we have a client uh, pigeon uh, restaurant in, in Gastown and Brandon Vasudi. Uh, a great, uh, smart young man that has started from two, uh, and it's in the beta stage right now. Um, but essentially, um, it's a delivery service that he set up uh, that has no transitional uh, transaction fees, uh, no percentage of gross taken, um, and uh, it's a little bit more control uh, on the restaurant side to uh, how that's working. So, uh, from two.ca is something that uh, I think we'll be launching uh, later this month. So, you know, there is uh, some silver lining in, in all of this potentially uh, for the future and a potential cap, and also some other opportunities for delivery um, uh, services and how they work. How sustainable do you think these delivery services are over the long, long haul? <laughs> the, the restaurants aren't making money. And I know it sounds like a lot of money, you know, the 20 or 30% commission that they're getting, but they are spending, you know, dump trucks full of money advertising their service. So, you know, are, are these delivery services like Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, are they profitable? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure what their profit model looks like. I know that Fedora has uh, has announced that they will be closing their uh, operations uh, in Canada. And, um, you know, that goes back to the uh, the model that they have with um, delivery drivers being on bicycles. Um, if you don't have that urban density uh, and opportunity of market, then, you know, that kind of model is, is going to, uh, to suffer. But, you know, I, I'm very interested to see if there is a moratorium put on uh, pricing structure in the future. And, and what the model will look like. And if it is that 15%, which has been the benchmarks for San Francisco um, and, uh, and Seattle, I, I'm wondering if, if they're going to be able to survive. Or, again, it's going to lead for new opportunities for local uh, businesses to now start delivery services that, that bring money back into the local economies as opposed to going to um, you know, somewhere outside of the local demographic. For our listeners who are concerned you know, for their local restaurants, you know, I don't think any of us want to see 
our local restaurant go under because you know they couldn't afford to keep open. What are some tips for them to to uh, you know to help their local local restaurants? Yeah, great question. You know, we've we've seen, and I should mention, we've seen a, a great response from from local uh, communities trying to support restaurants. And there's a few things that that they can do. Um, one, any opportunity to purchase gift certificates uh, at this time that might be used once we go through the phasing stage is certainly something that uh, infuses cash into their model. Um, secondly, if there's a, an availability of going to pick up. Uh, your order at the restaurant, then you're not paying that third-party fees. That that uh, entire sale goes right to the the restaurant itself. Um, and I think staying connected with um, with restaurants. I mean, uh, I know that many models now have been modified, uh, and there's new opportunities because a restaurant that you may not get into for a month might have a uh, new program that's uh, a little bit more market friendly. So uh, try and stay local and try and support as much as you can with ordering direct from the restaurant. We're talking with Alex Fraser. He is uh, a restaurant uh, consultant that uh, helps uh, restaurants become more profitable. He's uh, the VP of Western Operations over at the 15 Group. Uh, Give us your web address there quickly. Yeah, it's uh, www.the15group.com and www.the15group.com. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. My pleasure, gentlemen. Great to connect with you. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk back after this. You are back with Mike Agarbo and John Beeler. Want to talk telehealth now, and this is uh, something I think a lot of people uh, are doing uh, now, especially because uh, most of us can't get to the doctor because of the self-isolation that uh, many of us are adhering to. We want to kind of explore that uh, a little more and just see what it's all about and uh, if it's uh, working. Uh, On the line, uh, we've got uh, a great guest. His name is Dr. Richard Titus. He uh, is a uh, doctor in uh, Hamilton. He is also an associate clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University and the CEO of a uh, telehealth uh, company called WeCare. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, what, what a great, great time to see the doctor virtually. So I was telling John that we've gone uh, from 6% adoption, docs seeing patients virtually to 70% over a course of two to three weeks. That is a, an amazing uh, number. If you're a doctor, how, how do you find it, uh, you know, gone from a huge change here, going from seeing people in person to over, or, over video? Can you give the same type of care through a video chat? Mike, we can give the same type of care and sometimes better care. Because, for example, let's say you know you're, you're, you've got your dad at home or mom at home. Uh, she's got high blood pressure. In the old days, the only way you could see the doctor is by taking your mom, putting, getting her into the car, driving to the doctor's office, getting her up the steps, into the waiting room. And after half an hour, they get the exam room. And then by the time your mom's in the examining room, what do you think she wants to do? <laughs> not be there <laughs> yeah not be there she wants to go home yeah and what do you think her blood pressure is like it's way up exactly so this is so much better but you know so you brought, brought up an interesting thing about blood pressure like how do you deal with that though if you have to take blood pressure or uh or blood or you know take temperatures and things like that obviously that no. has to be done in person so great point mike so one of the issues is with blood pressure Blood pressure should not be done in the doctor's office. 
blood pressure should be done at home. And I tell my patients, look, what you, what you need to do is take two blood pressure readings every morning. Forget about the first reading. Document the second. So when I see you, I'm going to ask, what was your blood pressure reading the last 30 days? And they give me an average. And I treat them based upon that. Not what the blood pressure is in the office. Come into my office. Kids are screaming. There's gum on the chairs. So by the time you get into my office, you're not happy. <laughs> no, prob- probably uh, probably not. What do you think is going to happen after the the pandemic kind of eases down? You know, we, we don't know how long that's going to be. Do you think there's going to be a fundamental shift in how people access uh, their, their family doctors now? Well, there's been an explosion of virtual medicine. So the genie is out of the bottle and we won't be able to put the genie back in. So digital medicine is here to stay. And it's important that physician adopt it. And because the patients, every all the patients, every time I ask a patient or I see a patient virtually over this, this pandemic, the one question they always ask is, can I continue to do this after the pandemic? And I guess in your, <laughs> you would say uh, a resounding uh, yes. So as a doctor, um, are, are you kind of allocating s- uh, certain hours to be virtual? Yeah. So what I do is right now during the pandemic, there's some, th- there's, there's some aspects of patient care you have to see the patient. So when it's prenatal care, so children coming in for vaccinations, baby exams, people coming from the hospital for follow-up, well, you have to physically be there. Or I haven't figured out how to do blood, take blood virtually yet. <laughs> but when I do, uh, you know, I'll let you know. But so there's visits that you have to come in. But I would think 70 to 80% of the visits I can do virtually. So what I do is a lot of times patients want to see me virtually. And I say, look, hey, I can see you in an hour, two hours. And, and you know, I'll call you back and, and let's set something up. And patients love it. Great access, great care. So do you think that would speed up how quickly we could see doctors? Because right now, uh, my doctor, I have to make an appointment uh, days in in advance, maybe sometimes even a week in advance. Yeah, so uh, I I think with virtual medicine, uh, what happens is patients, uh, if you can't see your doctor right away, so by the time you see your doctor in a month, you know, you've saved up all these issues and the, the appointment takes like 20, 30 minutes. But if you've got a urinary tract infection and I have to see the doctor for the urinary tract infection and I want to see the doctor within, you know, within today because I don't want to have all this pain tonight and, and tomorrow, then these are really focused visits and, and they're efficient and I deal with your issue and, and you, you leave happy. So I find them certainly more efficient and more focused. So, but for some things, uh, you know, when I've gone into the doctor, he's got to kind of poke and prod me, you know, does it hurt here? Does it hurt there? Is that something that could be done virtually? A lot of times we do. You know, I say, oh, Mike, can you press over here? And they go, up here? And I say, no, a little bit lower. So there's a lot of things that you can do, you can direct the patient to do. Do you think that uh, some of these um, different tech devices that we talk about all the time on our show, like Fitbits and Apple Watches and other things that can take some kind of diagnostic diagnostic information. Is that useful for telemedicine? 
I, I love all that. I love, actually, if you could see, I have a Fitbit and an Apple Watch on, on <laughs> you know, Fitbit on my left, Apple Watch on my right. I love this digital technology because it helps me so much. I also like uh, the blood sugar. So you can get, you can get these, these now monitoring your blood sugar. You know, there's these apps. And the great thing about the apps is the physician can also have your value. So I have five of my patients that do the do the blood sugar on their app, and I see the results. So if the results go a little bit crazy, I can give them a call and say, hey, what have you been doing? What's happening? So digital um, medicine apps is certainly the way of the future. But not only that, it's not only good for the physician, but it really empowers the patient. You know, like... I've got this blood sugar monitoring app, and all of a sudden, they said, well, geez, I didn't know I shouldn't have had that two pieces of toast. You know, I've had one piece of toast, my blood sugar goes up to seven, but if I have two pieces of toast, it goes up to nine. So it's that immediate feedback. So I, I love this digital technology. Do you find any reluctance from certain people to do this? I do. Some people say, you know, Doc, I think this is super awesome, wonderful, but I don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't want to be guilty. So when I eat my chocolate almonds, I want to eat 10. I don't want to eat five because if I look at my glucose monitoring app, I'm going to eat five. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about virtual care and some more things that you need to know about how to use it. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. We're talking with Dr. Richard Titus. He is a doctor and uh, in Hamilton and also CEO at uh, WeCare. Don't forget to hit our website to enter our contest. We're giving away a Belkin wireless charger. GetConnectedMedia.com. Hit our newsletter tab, subscribe, and enter to win. When, when it comes to telehealth, is it is it just doctors now? Are there other aspects like can can you talk to a nurse or uh, your yeah. pharmacy? Is that a, a growing area? Yeah, so it's it's exploding. So you can you can talk to your physician, you can talk to specialists, you can talk to mental health workers. Um, one of the things that we came and one of the part of the guidelines that we came out we we came out with national virtual medicine guidelines. It came out February eleventh like really fortuitous, like four weeks before the pandemic. <laughs> no kidding. And one of, our, one of the, the pillars is that it's got to be, we recommend it's within the circle of care. Like it's so great if you can go see your family doctor that has your history, that knows what medications work and has your laboratory values. So you get your virtual care or medicine from him or her. And also... We've got specialists that are part of that particular team, and it's, it's so awesome. Is this limit to certain uh, parts of the population that can access this? Like, I'm thinking of, you know, like seniors, for example, that might not be uh, as, as good on technology. Are we kind well, of leaving them behind? Yeah, so seniors, is, it's the way you, you sort of approach it. So they said, no, I don't do virtual medicine. I said, okay. Uh, do you Skype with your granddaughter in Australia? Yes, I Skype with my granddaughter in Australia. Well, that's, it's, I call it medical Skype. Now you can <laughs> Skype with your doctor. And then she says, yeah, 
Well, that's easy. I could do it with my granddaughter in Australia. I guess I could do it with you down the street. Yes. So it's again, it's it's how you present it. It's all about the marketing message. What about Absolutely. what about security? Uh, uh, you know, should we be concerned about that? Because, you know, when you look at hackers, a lot of times it, it's them breaking into health-related uh, companies. So the long and the short answer is no. Okay, during the pandemic, we don't care what media you use. You can use your iPhone. You can use Skype. You can use FaceTime. We don't care. But having said that, after the pandemic, there's going to be definite restrictions, and you're going to have to have a secure virtual medicine platform. Tell us a little bit uh, about uh, your your company, WeCareMD.ca. Uh, so WeCareMD is, we sort of directed our care towards retirement homes and, and nursing homes. So our concern was, how do you get these patients s- seen in a timely manner? So when you have a, a senior and the senior has a, uh, let's say a bladder infection, if you don't deal with it immediately, they get sick very quickly. So what we did was we had uh, we have platforms put into retirement home, but it has digital tools. So digital tools we can with a stethoscope and otoscope. So I can do a complete examination without the patient leaving the retirement home. So this is before the pandemic, but but since the pandemic. This was an, a great way to address any needs of the patients in retirement home. They didn't have to go out. They weren't exposed. And I wasn't exposed going in. So I'm really proud to say that at WeCareMD, we take care of uh, about 10 retirement homes. And we have had no COVID-19 pandemic uh, or COVID-19 positive individuals. Knock on wood. I'm knocking on my head right now, <laughs> but but you got to provide the care, right? And it's got to be timely care. And digital medicine allows that. So even like for example, at sun, Sunday night, someone comes, they've got a cough, they, you know, they're bringing up phlegm, they're starting pneumonia. So let's deal with it Sunday night. So they could basically contact you, and within like a, an hour, they could be talking with you and getting diagnosed. Yeah. Exactly. We're talking uh, with a, a very interesting guest right now. His name is Dr. Richard Titus. Uh, he's the CEO of a uh, care company called WeCareMD.ca that provides care for uh, seniors. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. When we come back, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. It's Tech of the Week time. John, what have we got? Well, this week there was a couple of really interesting announcements on the uh, Pi retro, Raspberry Pi sector. Uh, we, first of all, we've got RetroPi, which is the big uh, emulator software that we've talked about quite a lot uh, about on uh, for for basically emulating all your favorite old arcade games and. Uh, game console games. Uh, they've now officially released support for the Pi 4, which is arguably the fastest version of the Raspberry Pi uh, out there now. So now you can emulate a lot of much newer uh, games and consoles on that, which is really exciting. And they also announced, uh, Raspberry Pi Foundation announced a new camera for the Raspberry Pi. And this is a, a much improved quality of camera system that actually supports interchangeable lenses, which is really interesting. So it'll be, I haven't, 
tried it myself yet because uh, it was just announced, but it looks really interesting that they've really jacked up the specs on the camera itself. And uh, I can see a lot of interesting applications. One of the photos that they showed with the announcement was it actually being interfaced with a Canon lens, a giant Canon lens. So being able to put this big sensor on uh, your existing camera lens uh, stuff is, is going to be pretty cool, I think. And people probably find some pretty interesting uses for it. Well, that yeah, I, I saw that announcement about the camera. It, it's fascinating because, uh, you know, the Raspberry Pi, for the listeners that don't know what it is, it's a, it's like a, a little hobby computer. Uh, you basically buy the little board, and uh, these things are tiny. Uh, by the time you put the case on, it's, you know, smaller than a, a deck of cards, uh, literally. Uh, and you can do so many different types of things. You know, you talked about the, the version 4 of it. Uh, that's the most powerful one yet. You can actually turn that into a computer. Uh, some people are actually running versions of Windows 10 on Windows 10 on it. Uh, much better for running things like Linux, uh, which is kind of a uh, you know a version uh, like a graphical type version of like Mac OS and, and Windows. Uh, but the camera, like how 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 would that work? I mean, you're basically attaching a camera lens to a board. Like, do you, do you take yeah, that well, out around? Essentially, with you? it turns it turns the Raspberry Pi into the camera body, if you will. Yeah. And then, because uh, um, the nice thing is the way they've integrated the the camera attachments to the boards that uses a little ribbon cable, so you can actually position it a couple different ways. And a lot of the cases, uh, at least with the previous version of the camera, actually had support built into it to attach the the old camera, which was you know very low quality, kind of like a webcam yeah. quality. This seems like a much more advanced, uh, much higher megapixel camera option. So I can see some pretty interesting cases that'll basically just interface with with an existing lens system, probably. Well, that's all the time we have left. Don't forget to visit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Go to our homepage there and the newsletter tab. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you are entered to win a new Belkin wireless charging stand, special edition in white. This thing's cool for any of the new phones that can do the wireless charging. Again, visit the homepage, getconnectedmedia.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Don't forget to listen to our sister show, The App Show, tomorrow morning here on Global News Radio, CKNW 980. We will uh, be talking about uh, a lot of cool new apps and uh, also uh, the Taiwan Digital Minister and how they're handling uh, the coronavirus uh, over there. We'll see you again next time.